Biden, then the sitting vice president, knew that there were Hunter's business associates in the room. Yeah, I think I can I can definitively say at particular dinners or meetings, he knew there were business associates, and he you know we or if I was there, I was a business associate too. Yeah. Um, so I think, or if you know any of the other colleagues from the D.C. office or the New York office were there, so yeah, at times there were. From the you know to be you know completely clear on the calls, I don't know if it was an orchestrated call in or not. It certainly was powerful though because. You know, if you're sitting with a foreign business person and you hear the vice president's voice, that's prize enough. The 2024 Republican presidential primary field is taking shape. The battle lines are becoming clearer, and so is the field of candidates. Is the odds on favorites, if you look at the polling, still Trump versus Biden? That seems to be it, but it's just way too early to tell. I'm more angry now and I'm more committed now than I ever was. Big challenge for these candidates is going to be how do they navigate Donald Trump? And, and how do they navigate Ron DeSantis? You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. Welcome back to the Ruthless Variety program and an action-packed big news week. Uh, We're without one of our own comfortably smug who's likely enjoying himself in some far-flung location as we work hard to do the people's business on the Ruthless Variety program. You hate to see it. You, you really hate do hate it. to see you, it. You do, but we haven't forgotten him. We've chosen to remember <laughs> him uh, today with this candle. In the arms of the angel. <laughs> That's kind. That's kind. There you go. I don't want to cut off your bars. <laughs> Keep going. No. Yeah, I'm no. Good. I mean, we, we haven't gotten to the good I'm stuff. good. Okay. Uh, All right. Well, look, the opening you heard there is a uh, sort of breaking interview for, by Tucker Carlson, an incredible get, by the way, where he got Devin Archer, the guy who testified on Monday before the House of Representatives in a closed session of which uh, none of the audio and there was no video have become public. He has basically repeated what this deposition was to Tucker Carlson uh, on his show. And in this particular clip, what he's talking about is he can definitively say that Biden knew that he was calling in and dealing with business associates when he was talking on speakerphone in business meetings that Hunter was conducting. Yeah, he was willfully doing the collusion, as, as as the libs might say. He was willfully doing it. And look... It's significant for so many reasons, but it's mostly significant in that at this point, it's about taking people's word for things. Mm-hmm. And the then vice president and presidential candidate ultimately in 2019 said that he'd never had any conversations with Hunter Biden about his business at all. Mm-hmm. This guy's saying that there's 20, 20 occasions he called in during business meetings yeah. to talk to people. And if you're looking for eyewitnesses with credibility, look no further than the person who was on the board with Hunter in the room at the time the speaker phone went on, <laughs> hearing the voice of the big guy on the other side. Yeah, It's just so unbelievable. Mm-hmm. It's just, I can't believe we are in a place currently where this isn't the biggest story in the world. It's not for a couple of reasons. First is uh, nobody in the corporate media seems to want to cover anything that would be bad for a Democratic president, Mm -hmm. although it's tipping a little bit and they're starting to ask questions about it. But you almost have to set the whole house on fire in order to get anybody's attention on it. And the second is the big news of the week, which we've got another Trump indictment, the uh, third one in as many months this one is 
uh, critically important to the post-election 2020 framework, where we're talking about everything that happened from Election Day 2020 to January 6th and the president's responsibility therein. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we'll get into all of that and more, but we've got a couple of other important things that you got to pay attention to. First off, we have a great guest today. You've heard him here before, and I've you've seen him a lot over the last couple of years. Chris Rufo. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's written a new book. He's here to talk about that and a whole bunch of other things. Great interview, and is a good guy, and we we get along with him well. I really appreciate his work. You know, uh, political fads come and go, and. You know, a couple of years ago when he first was introduced to the scene, the whole woke piece of our our culture was just coming online uh, in terms of public knowledge. Yeah. And it was red hot for a while. And it's still pretty hot, but it's gone down considerably. Well, not for this guy. He stayed on it. And he's trying to explain how this is an existential threat in a lot of different ways and the history of it and what you need to do to be prepared for it and what our society needs to do in his words to basically have a conservative revolution against this sort of push left by every establishment in our country mm-hmm. interesting mm-hmm. very uh he's got good stuff the, the sponsor for today's program is masterworks we've got major cities in a doom loop and even wall street is trimming the fat to save their bacon but not every investment is floundering right now. One of our longtime partners is actually thriving. That's right, because Masterworks now has 13 sales to date. That's five more sales just since we talked about them in December. And like before, every single sale to date has handed back a positive net return to investors. That includes recent net returns of 10, 13, and even 35%. As of 619, Masterworks has over 740,000 users and over $750 million invested. Masterworks has so much demand that paintings can sell out in minutes. As a result, they have a wait list. But because we're longtime partners, you're getting special access. So go to masterworks.com and use promo code RUTHLESS. That's promo code RUTHLESS at masterworks.com to join today. See important regulation A disclosures at masterworks.com slash CD. This is not investment advice. We also have our YouTube channel. And one of the things that we like to do with our YouTube channel is provide a little something extra for the viewers mm. that you're not getting just on an audio content. Mm. Well, and we're also getting very close to uh, our first milestone of 10,000 subscribers. Oh, you know, yeah. We've only been at this for... You know, I think six weeks or or so. Yeah, you know, which is you know a nice little tip of the cap to the wolf over there for getting you know all the good content on a there. A big tip of the cap because we know from our you know millions of listeners, the vast majority of people do this in the car on the way or or something. They're audio only, so yeah. now now it's like a whole different bunch of people who are getting the ruthless variety program live in their living room or at work. But here's like the special treat. And we're going to start doing this a little bit more often. There's stuff that just gets on video that you, you, we like to talk about, but you got to see to be to be believed. Yeah. So, so this clip was banging around Twitter uh, today, and it's uh, <laughs> here, here's the context for everybody on on audio. Um, the Somali government sent a quote athlete to represent the nation. <laughs> this isn't a, a sprint. 
Uh, problem was that the sprinter has never ran before. Which it becomes evident in this clip. Uh, we later found out that the athlete is actually the niece of Somalia's head mm. of athletics. <laughs> <laughs> it was a 100-meter sprint at oh the uh, World University Games in China. Have a look at this athlete. Junyi. I, I, don't think, I don't think she has a quick twitch. I, I like how she, she puts her feet in the blocks. She puts her feet in the blocks as if the Somali will compete at the same level as everyone else in the race today. Well, well she's, got, she's got a different outfit. Yeah. Oh, oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> She's 50 meters behind. Vanishes from the frame. She may have an afterburner. Let's see when she finishes. Oh, you can't. You can't see when she finishes. She's still not a. There she comes. There she comes. A little, a, a little winded. Poor woman. You're not often winded after a 100 meter dash in the way that she appears. It was like. It was like a lineman running the 40 at the combine. A lineman? It was like, yeah, if they were running it backwards. I mean, to be honest, this is such a funny story for so many reasons. There has now been an official apology from the country of Somalia. Uh, this is according to BBC. Somalia, sorry for fielding record slow sprinter. Uh, there may have been calls in Somalia for officials to be sacked after fielding a novice 100-meter sprinter at the World University Games in China. The country's sports minister has apologized for selecting Nasra Abubakar Ali, uh, who took almost twice as long <laughs> to finish the race as the winner. She repeated, uh, has reported zero uh, competitions <laughs> in history. I'm shocked. <laughs> A couple of the quotes, though, are, are, are just hysterical. They've got the sports minister who's got to deal with this now. Yeah. And he's like, uh, what happened today was not a representation of the Somali people. We apologize to the Somali people. Uh, I hope they had a Netflix camera crew following her because I'd really like to see the backstory of how she got there and what her warm-up might have been like. I need to know. I need to know how this happened. I think they just looked at the race and they're like, "Oh shit, we forgot to put somebody in this," and they just pulled her out of the crowd <laughs> from a, from accounting. Yeah, but like, hey, <laughs> Jeff's niece is in accounting. Well, you get down there and stretch. What? <laughs> <laughs> she did pretty good in the fourth grade relay day. If you're just getting audio on this, what you need to understand is that you know what people show up in at these sprints. Yeah. I mean, they're they're in, you know, sprinter gear, like a relatively tight-fitting thing where they can move and and at a quick rate, and 100 meters is, you know, other than a 50 meters, it's the fastest thing you can do yeah. in, in Olympic-type settings. She shows up in like a... It basically looks like what you wear on Sunday when you went out too late on Saturday. Night. It's a, it's a, it's almost a Russian tracksuit. <laughs> I don't, even, but that's not even that's giving it too much credit. It, it, what that that looks like, my hangover gear on Sunday morning. <laughs> yeah, when you're laying on the couch and you're like, don't talk yeah. to me in the cold, in the cold, in the basement. <laughs> just, just trying to trying to summon the will to live. But I also have to salute her at some level for being like, I'll do it. Yeah. I'll do it. Yeah, poor They're woman. like, hey, would you like to run against people who run like 10-second 100-meter dashes? Yeah. Have you ever run before? No. No. Uh-uh. No, nope. I can do it, though. Big crowd. <laughs> Profound confidence. Pretty excited. Yeah. And then she comes out of the blocks looking like a rhinoceros. <laughs>
(laughs) It's just unbelievable. Uh, Okay. Well, we start every Thursday's program with a reading of our five stars. And to do that, we go to The Voice. So the first one comes from Red Steel 67, and it's titled, The Fellas Made Me Change for the Better. Since I found you through MK, Megan Kelly, I haven't missed an episode, and you all make me laugh, even though the tough, tough even, Biden even through. years. I'm even through the tough Biden years. We get a little hooked on phonics here yep. this, this <laughs> evening. It's fine. Thank you, Michael. <laughs> One of the biggest changes I've undergone is that I was always so kind and giving to the animals around me, going so far as to buy extra cucumbers to feed the deer that live in my development. Mm. Oh, no. Now they've been cut off. Yes. And when I go by them mm-hmm. in the driveway, we stare each other down, and I tell them I know they're planning something <laughs> nefarious. I won't be fooled anymore. Good. Thank you, Red Steel 67. Another convert to the side mm-hmm. of the people. You could also put, like, uh, gasoline on a salt lick. Oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> I, maybe that's too far. They don't seem like they've done anything yet, but if you feel like something's afoot and it's imminent... Well, they carry ticks. I know that. They carry ticks, and those ticks have gotten worse with the meat-eating thing oh, and yeah. all that other stuff. Yeah. It's terrible. Yeah, you Hollywood do. Hen is terrified of those. She sure me. is. Uh, okay, let's go to the next one, Dunks. Um, okay, this is from Rolotham83. Uh, title is Requesting Immunity from Charges. I'm sure this will be divisive. <laughs> If it pleases the court, may I approach the bench? As a Disneyland annual pass holder since the, since the 70s, I frequently walk the park for exercise. The walk from my car through the park and back totals almost four miles. This walk provides a reasonably safe refuge from loose dogs, street gangs, and the random mental patient who would assault me, and the video would certainly wind up on Fox. I have outlived my family pass holders, but am now accompanied on at least two walks each week by the fellows and the program. Best part is that when they see me laughing at one of the many antics you present, chances are good that we (laughs) are laughing at them. I love that. (laughs) I humbly ask the court for immunity from charges. Keep it up, own the libs, and smile. It's just a little curve that sets a lot of things straight. Uh, I don't know that we can provide. It's not not for us. It's uh, there's a lot of wisdom in this. There is a lot of wisdom. A ton but of wisdom. Not, it, I don't think it's for us to say if there's blanket immunity here. Uh, look, I think what this person is doing is exercise. This is exercise. This isn't standing in line and taking up the spot of a child on the teacups. It certainly is a mitigating factor. There's no question about that. Right. I mean, I think. They are on premises, though. I, I defer judgment to Ashbrook, who has taken his kids to Disney World, mm-hmm. and whether he considers this immunity. But in, in my mind, it's it becomes an issue because you're taking up space in the lines, you're being slow at the you know yeah, the bathrooms. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it's just it's too many people doing the things that's there for kids. What do you think? So there are those who speed walk around disney for exercise you can actually see them you you know you know who they are Mm -hmm. because they're just they're just moving through moving through the paths trying to weave their way around others and and that that strikes me as a little bit of a different variety than the 40 something middle-aged person who is either pushing your kid out of the way to get into the park or standing 
near a ride gawking at or them. like yeah. riding riding the teacups yeah if you if you are just motoring around getting your steps in it's just it's different than uh it, I, I think it's a different category D- different is what i heard i didn't hear exonerated well i'm saying exonerated okay well i'm gonna reserve judgment but i appreciate your fanship and i think this is there are a lot of mitigating factors there uh many of which i think well actually let me take it all back if you're a ruthless fan i think you're probably exonerated yeah you know what we're talking about yeah you know what we're full talking exoneration about. No, and nobody knows it better than someone walking around looking at these people. Record expunged. Creeps yeah. all over the place. Uh, okay, so the last one here, St. Ojak, uh, comfortably, uh, comfortably conservative in God's country. You guys keep me informed and entertained every time I see a new podcast in my library. Count Me In is one who found... Megan Kelly from your podcast. Oh. I like that. I'm a territory manager who spends a lot of windshield time traversing the great state of Ohio. Well, you know, you've got a fan over here uh, in Smashbrook. Your interview with Bernie Moreno absolutely won my vote for him as your senator. Uh, anyone who can slay a rhino makes this country better. On a side note, take care of that COVID fly tape smug. he can be brutally honest calling out things like dingo passover but compassionate and wise beyond his years he's got my my vote in 2024 (laughs) let's go (laughs) i love that that's so good i hope you also listen to our interview with frank larose our attempt here on the program is to get you the candidates you'll ultimately be deciding in front of you so you can make those decisions uh it sounds like you had a good impression from certainly from one of them anyway that's what we do here on the variety program um Fellas, should we get right into the Trump sure. situation yeah. Yeah. here? Yeah. 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 Okay, so you saw, look, yesterday, or with great fanfare, mm-hmm. the corporate media, and it felt like a different tenor of the of the indictment watch that we saw during the documents cage mm-hmm. case. Everything was sort of hyped up, waiting for Jack Smith to show up with what everybody understood to be uh, the shorthand is like the Jan 6 indictments. It's not exactly what that was and what the indictments were. It's about the post-election activity of the former president of the United States Mm -hmm. and whether or not he knowingly uh, contributed and deceived the American people about a bunch of things that ultimately led to uh, an effort to in their world, in their words, obstruct an official proceeding, that being the counting of the electoral votes that Joe Biden ultimately won, mm-hmm. um, and whether he did so knowingly under false pretenses and everything else. Um, so, look, I think you've, you got to start with this by saying the reason that it was such, it was so amped up, this is the thing that the liberal left has been most anxious about mm-hmm. since January 6th. Mm-hmm. Right? They didn't get what they wanted in the second impeachment. And since that day, throughout the course of all of the Jan 6 hearings and all of that, they've been waiting on this, mm-hmm. this moment. And you could tell. I was looking at things like, uh, who's that clown at uh, Bulwark? Tim O. Uh, Tim. Miller? Yeah, Tim Miller, that yeah. guy. Where he was like, we're just giddy, basically. Mm-hmm. Is what a giddy. Well, yeah, because it's the culmination of what became, after Jan 6, it became... Um, the, the theme was uh, undermining democracy, right? Yeah. Every Republican in this country was undermining democracy um, until Trump, uh, Trump's in prison, right? So right. so this is sort of that payoff for them is is finally getting an indictment on 
events related to January 6th. Yeah. So the top line is the 45th president faces up to 55 years in prison if convicted on all the charges. <clears throat> However, even if found guilty, Trump can still contest the 2024 presidential election in which he's the front runner for the Republican nomination. That's what makes all of this stuff more complicated, mm-hmm. right? Because you're not dealing with a typical presentation of charges and your ability to defend yourself in a court of law. There's also a massive political context. Right. To all of this. I think immediately in a political context, this is just going to repolarize everything. Trump is going to have more of what he's already gotten over the previous two indictments in that there's going to be a wagon circling a little bit around him. Mm -hmm. And particularly because of the nature of the, because it's a a political issue and has been for a couple of years, it's almost more so in that regard. Mm. But it also makes you through go through, and Duncan, I'm interested in your thoughts on this, as you go through the reliving and the, the point by point within the indictment of all of it, it also just reminds you of a really rough time for, for the country, for the party, for everything. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think I've been shy in saying it, and I think I mentioned it a couple of weeks ago on the show, But Donald Trump has a history of shopping around for opinions he agrees with. Um, And in this indictment, this indictment contains four counts. The one account for uh, conspiracy to defraud the United States. That's sort of the most general and broad first count. There's two counts of uh, obstructing an official proceeding. And then there's um, a conspiracy against rights, which I believe is the indictment of the the count on um, the alternative slate of electors issue. Yeah. also, that bleeds into the obstructing yeah, yeah, yeah. piece, too. Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, but what what you see in the indictment and has been widely reported in the last couple of years is you had numerous people um, uh, in the White House counsel's office and some of his advisors uh, and, and members of the campaign, the 2020 Trump campaign, who were telling Donald Trump that it's over, mm-hmm. um, that they didn't see either either they were telling him he had lost or they were telling him that these um, strategies being suggested by Rudy Giuliani or Sidney Powell or whoever. John East John is another one. We're, we're, we're not going to work, that this wasn't going to be successful. And ultimately, it's a problem to go down these various avenues, whether it's alternative slates of electors or trying to get um, Vice President Pence to invalidate the results on January 6th, all of these sort of things. And so the back and forth in there, you get a sense of what has been widely reported that you know, when he heard stuff like that, he just went to other people, people who I think are fucking stupid, mm. um, and and shopped around for an opinion that he agreed with. And that's what ultimately got him in trouble with the Mar-a-Lago docs thing when he was talking to that fitting guy from Judicial Watch rather than his own legal counsel who was advising him to work with the feds on the subpoena which he'd received. Instead, he listened to a guy who I don't think had his best interests at heart. Yeah, And I think that's what you're seeing here with John Eastman and Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell. They had the, these wild conspiracy theories that every time um, the White House counsel or members of the campaign tried to track down the allegations that they were suggesting, they came up empty. They lost in court 60 times, yeah. right? And every time they lost, they just had a new theory of something they could do. And then you had Mike Pence, fucking poor Mike Pence, calls up Trump in the indictment and says, you know, Trump takes his call on Christmas and he's, he's wishing the president a Merry Christmas. <laughs> and Donald Trump goes right into, you know, what are you going to do on, on January 6th? And he's like, I don't, 
I don't have the power in the Constitution to do the thing you're suggesting. In fact, previously in a meeting, and this is also described in the indictment, that like he was there with John Eastman, the guy who concocted this whole yeah. scheme for January 6th of what Mike Pence was supposed to do for Donald Trump. And Mike Pence asked him, is this legal? And they couldn't give him an answer. <laughs> of course And not. Pence said to Trump, your own counsel can't tell me that this is a legal thing for me to do. How do you expect, like, how do you, can you expect me to do it? Mm, yeah. Right? And his response was? You're just too honest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're just too honest. And there, and there, so that, what, that vignette that you've just outlined is critically important to this entire thing. And, and, and one more thing, though. It, it goes to the mindset of Donald Trump. It doesn't go to guilt in this thing. And I think there are a lot of mitigating cir circumstances about political speech. And like, our, like, and that's going to be a broader conversation we're going to have for a very long time. I think it goes to the frame of mind of Donald Trump that he sees everything as a negotiation. Back from his whole professional career. But he thinks of everything as like a negotiation over buying a building or some sort of business deal. And because he uses that frame of mind for everything... Like the situational ethics get very murky when you're talking about things that are very fucking serious. Like yeah. This. Well, yeah. with this particular indictment, I thought that what he wasn't charged with was just as interesting as what he was charged with. There was no material connection between him and the Oath Keepers or him right. and, and, and some of these groups that were in They did. They very clearly the did not charge him with inciting a riot they didn't yeah and they, they exactly they did not charge him with in, Although, insurrection which is what the media and the democrats have already convicted him of in a court of public opinion yeah and so i i, I found that very interesting yeah i also found it very interesting that jonathan turley who is a conservative uh conservative attorney you know very smart guy who we you know and others have relied on in the past for a point of view on these things and he was very critical of Trump and uh, very complimentary of the case in the prior indictment. The documents the prior, case. The yeah. documents case in the prior federal indictment. But here, what he said in this incident, and let me just quote from him. He said, I felt the Mar-a-Lago indictment was strong. This is the inverse. He is saying that Trump was indicted for being wrong in this case, which is not a crime. The special counsel's latest indictment is an assault on the First Amendment. Yeah, so he, what you got to know about Turley is a First Amendment absolutist. Um, he's a terrific, smart guy, and you've seen him on Fox a whole bunch of times, so listen to his stuff, because he actually does have remarkable insight that ultimately plays yeah. out over a period of time. We've seen that in a, in a number of different avenues. But the one thing that all legal scholars will agree upon and I think one of the reasons why he thinks this is sort of weak is that there is no precedent and mm -hmm. that's the thing that you need to understand about what's happening right now is this is unprecedented it's mm -hmm. not just unprecedented in terms of bringing charges against a former president it's bringing charges against a former president while he was president and it goes to very clear first amendment uh, protections and whether or not you can knowingly say false things and that's what they hang that. That's why I stopped you on this piece mm -hmm. about the, how the Pence interaction was right. so important because it would imply that he knows that it's a dis dishonest play. Right. And that you're too honest. Right. Would mean I, what I need is somebody more dishonest. Right. That's what they're trying to portray. Whether that went down or not, you know, we're going to find out. Um, but ultimately, what they hang their hat on in all of this is that Trump knowingly led the country down a path that 
ended with what the government says is a conspiracy to try to impanel a bunch of people who are not electors to become electors and send official paperwork to Capitol Hill to be a part of the official electoral count. That's right. the bottom line here. Right. None of that has ever been prosecuted with these statutes. Right, because, I mean, Barbara Boxer challenged the 2004 election results in Ohio against George yeah. Bush. Right. I bet you I could find a way to prove that she knew that was fake. I yeah. bet you if we really tried, we could probably figure out that that was I fake, would think and she knew it. I think would think she would she, have legal liability right, if they that, convict him that, on that. That she was probably being dishonest and probably knew she was being dishonest. So it's, I think the burden of proof for the government in this is extraordinary, but, like high which, which and goes, difficult. Which kind of goes back to Turley's point right. that Donald Trump was wrong, and being wrong does not necessarily mean you're a felon. No, I I mean, I think like in, in the big picture, like this is a very serious indictment. I'm not trying to say it's not, and it's obviously... Like, look, dude, we lost the 2022 midterms because of conversations about shit like this. Yeah. Like it, it hurt a lot of our statewide candidates and elections across the country. And if this is the conversation we're going to have over the next whatever year and a half, it's going to be tough for Republicans, particularly in suburban areas. That being said, I think like the PR component of this, the, the that is the, the greatest initial threat that I see for Donald Trump. I think... It's a very hard legal case to prove, but like some of the stuff contained in here, like the pen stuff and whatever is like politically damaging. This is the most politically charged and difficult in the context of politics yeah. thing for Donald Trump that's come up. Right. People could have a wide array of opinions about the documents case. My guess is they probably fall along the lines that you were going to vote anyway. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. The Stormy Daniels thing in New York, we've known it for years and years People have widely opined that the case is nonsense. It seemed to push Republicans all the way into the Trump camp in a way that hasn't been since he was president of the United States. Kind of know what the political fallout was from all that. This one cuts to that center of the electorate, the same center of the electorate that widely disapprove of Joe Biden. Mm -hmm. Widely disapprove. So politically speaking, this is a hell of a lot worse. Legally, I guess, as Jonathan Turley would say, doesn't feel like it is. No, legally, it's got to be the Doc's case. I think we, you know, we said that on the show. I know if you like are a big supporter of Donald Trump and you're listening to this right now, you probably hate all these conversations, but you probably should know the truth of the matter, which is like the Mar Lago Doc's case is very legally perilous for Donald Trump. Like this one is probably, like you said, in the political context, the most damaging. But this is a really hard case to prove. It also has really profound implications to speech and debate in this country and campaigns and elections right. and your uh, responsibility as an elected official. I mean, there has been ample precedent, Supreme Court precedent, I think it was an Alvarez case or something mm -hmm. like that, that would suggest that a politician can knowingly say a lie in the context of a political debate, and that does not make them liable for anything. Well, what if you think your opponent is a liar? Yeah, and, and you're doing a tit for tat thing. And I mean, that, you could, you could. You that's could, why and, you protect and, and, all right, of that, and, right? What if, what if you actually do think there is fraud occurring? You're not allowed to say it. Like, it, I mean, well, in all in all honesty, like, I think that's the precarious I, I mean, position that I, we now find yeah, ourselves I mean, in. We all know, we all know how the sixty plus courts ruled on fraud. We we all know that, but like, 
is it going to chill a potential future person from calling out fraud if it's i mean isn't that what the executive is supposed to be able to do like, i mean if we're being honest about this the honest truth is is that if january 6 never happened none of this would ever be here well right and right. it's not contained jane six is not in this indictment doesn't mean they can't add charges but that's not in this indictment right well which is i i, I was i was sort of stunned yeah i, I thought that's i thought that was going to be a huge part of what they brought down yeah. yeah, but if Donald Trump didn't listen to Rudy Giuliani with hair dye running down his face and Sidney Powell, none of right. this would have happened no, either. Right. So, so I mean, there there is some responsibility for Donald Trump to make better decisions, and like that is comes through crystal clear in this indictment, and that the political implications of that are huge. I guess I'm just saying, so much of this is, is so much of this world is an expectations game, and in talking to journos ahead of this indictment, it was just always shorthanded as the January yep. 6 indictment is coming down, and then there's nothing about January yeah. 6. So I, it, what I think is most interesting, other than obviously the facts of this case and as it plays out and the political consequences of it, is the defenses that you get immediately. Mm -hmm. And they're, they come in two varieties. The first is weaponization of the DOJ. And you heard a whole bunch of Republicans talk about that. Look, in the context of what's happening with Hunter Biden and in the context of what happened for years with Russiagate, that is a very real thing. Mm -hmm. And I think there has to be an open question about whether or not some of these charges would be brought against a former president of the United States if there wasn't an element of that. Mm -hmm. I will say from a government point of view uh, and from a just a sort of constitutional republic point of view, what happened post-election 2020 is something you'd like to not have happen again. Now, I don't know if the Department of Justice is the right enforcer of that or if it's just people at the ballot box. I would suggest probably the latter. But the government evidently sees that as a in critically important part because as, it, as i said none of this stuff has ever been prosecuted before it has profound implications not just on donald trump I mean, it's, let's say for a moment that he gets uh uh convicted on the conspiracy piece and that he knowingly sort of propagated all of these things that were not true um what does that mean for all the people that voted with him yeah, Doesn't that implicate them too? Yeah. Right? And that is just like, no, we're not going to go down that road. You can't right. go down that road. That is a horribly dangerous, like, democracy-threatening road to go down. So I'd be interested to hear how they actually answer that. Mm -hmm. The second defense that I find most fascinating here is that Trump was – Trump didn't think that he was telling a lie. Mm -hmm. Right? And, like, his – his view, his belief that he was right, even though we know he was wrong, right? Uh, and sixty-three courts have proved it, and and all of the recounts and counts and hand counts and diagnostics on the election is that that it never occurred to him that he was wrong about all that. And and what they'll say is, yeah, there were people telling him he was wrong, but there were also people telling him he did win. They're and they're all listed. And they're all listed as co-conspirators. Well, ex ex exactly. You know right. I mean? like, but th their point is that he had people in his ear on both sides. It right. wasn't just it wasn't just one echo chamber of one point of view. And I think all of that sort of speaks to the messy underpinnings of this whole deal. And and like the the speech. Now, I, I mean, I just I, I was persuaded by Turley's uh, piece. I think the guy's very smart. 
And um, let me just say, having lived it uh, and been a part of some of these conversations that you know people in the White House and whatnot were having, and I wasn't talking to John Eastman and Rudy Giuliani, right, right, right. idiots. You couldn't find anyone in the White House that would tell you that they were on the right track. Right. There was not a single, and I had a lot of conversations, there were not a single person who was like, yeah, that's definitely going to be overturned, and there was definitive fraud. And that, like, they all thought that this was nonsense. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, what does that, it tells you that, like, the prevailing culture within the White House itself would suggest that people didn't believe, and I, let me tell you, working for a principal, particularly a president of the United States, you're not inclined to not believe the principle mm-hmm. right so there was some stuff there that was very clear to an awful lot of us uh, that was not happening whether or not it was to donald trump i don't know that's what the prosecution now apparently has to prove along with a whole bunch of other stuff i mean i think i think the most troubling thing of all of this is you've got you know more and more evidence that Joe Biden is on the take with his son Hunter with this Burisma stuff with the Devin Archer testimony. You've got Fitch downgrading the long term credit rating of the United States from AAA. You know, voters, if you look at all these polls, want us to be talking about the economy. Mm. We're not talking about any of those things. We're talking about another indictment of Donald Trump. This is a great point. And I mean, it's just a shame. The media is obviously never going to help us with this. They're loving talking about this. They love it. They say it. They're joyous. But it doesn't help us win an election. It doesn't help us win an election. And and look, look back at all of this stuff. Whether or not you think that he is being unfairly prosecuted. Whether or not you think that this is all a result of the deep state fighting back against Donald Trump, whether or not you think any of these charges hold merit or not, on each and every one of these occasions, there is critically poor decision making being done here. Mm -hmm. Critically poor. That is given opportunity. And the first thing I learned in politics, Republican politics, early on in my career was you don't give them opportunities. Because mm-hmm. you're going to have an established media and you're going to have a, a you know, quote unquote deep state, but basically the permanent governing class that is coming after you at every turn. They don't want conservatism. So the question is whether or not you provide them opportunities to try to take you down. And that's what I find so interesting about this whole argument in the primary is like who is most capable of turning back a DOJ that seems awfully political, an FBI that seems awfully political failures of an intelligence service and their attaches over the years like who can do all of that i think it's a really tough argument for donald trump to make that he's your guy mm-hmm. he's the one guy in all of these conversations that, that got his toe stuck in the door yeah but i mean his argument on the other side there is is saying all of these indictments the reason why they're coming after me is because they think i'm the greatest threat uh, against joe biden and that's, I mean, it may not be a right argument, but it's a simple argument to make to an electorate and who, then, see, who, who saw him targeted with the Russia Gate bullshit for four years, you yeah. know? So, I mean, that's the argument he's going with. And then his rivals will say, yeah, but you put Christopher Ray in charge of the FBI. Yeah, yeah but they don't. Yeah. And that's, I think, the, the biggest 
Oh, you're saying they don't say that loud enough. Yeah, well, it's the the funniest thing about this primary is that usually you use every misstep by an opponent mm-hmm. as an opportunity to draw a contrast and how you would do it differently. Yeah. I haven't heard a single person, not even Chris Christie, mm-hmm. who's just been savagely attacking Trump from day one, but I haven't heard anybody say, and that's the reason why you need to elect me because I'm not going to do stupid shit like that. Mm-hmm. Nobody says that. No, it's a lot of it's just sort of bank shot stuff about how I'm the best person to stop the weaponization of the DOJ and I've got this plan to But it also infers it also infers that like he's a political Right, that, that things are still unfair to Donald Trump, that it's right. un, unfair. That he had created none of his that, own I life. mean, the deep state didn't force Donald Trump to listen to Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell. Like, they, there was no trick. They didn't trick him into taking their advice, their dumb advice. But it's way, way too subtle. You know, it's and, way too and, subtle. And, the, and the, right, bad, right. The, the, the difficult thing about subtlety is nobody really understands what you're right. trying to get I heard at. somebody say that. I think it's going to be... Uh, I think as we get closer to the debate and everything, a lot of this, the knives are going to get sharpened and people are going to be more direct in some of these attacks you have to think you have to you you have to think but you know you got like you know even tim scott who was out there saying basically that this is a he remains troubled Mm -hmm. about the doj and whatnot and you can remain troubled on that but is nobody going to speak to the evidence that we've provided here (laughs) like i mean there are things that are legal arguments Mm -hmm. that in my view probably obliterate a lot of this case but then there are fact patterns that nobody's challenging Mm -hmm. yeah and nobody's challenging the fact that donald trump had extremely poor judgment Mm post-election and that the things that he was saying and doing were wrong there's donald trump's not challenging that which i find astonishing and yet you don't have anybody in the primary electorate that's doing the same i get it like from a strategist point of view why wrap jan six and post uh, election 2020 around your candidate's neck when you're not the guy who is in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. Let somebody else deal with it. That makes sense. Yeah. But taking no advantage of what looks like from an executive yeah. critical decision making that puts your party back. I actually have something for you there, but okay. I got to wait um, till, till we do winner, winner of the week. Okay. Oh, so can okay. we, can we, can Let's we get, get right to, to it? Yeah. Let's get to winner of the Let's week. Let's get right to it. Smash, you want to go first? Well, uh, as you fellas know, victory takes many forms. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> and uh, there's a concept that has developed over the last few years on the Internet called the Internet Hall of Fame. Um, and sometimes <laughs> when you win the Internet, you win the week. Whether or not you're winning the election, it remains to be seen. But you have the ability to win the week. And this week, I think Vivek Ramaswamy has won the Internet. He did an interview with this guy, Alex Stein, who's a comedian, very funny. A lot of our listeners probably follow this guy. He does a lot. He's a very, very funny guy. And Stein asked him about whether 9-11 was an inside job. And Vivek Ramaswamy... (laughs) (laughs) He said, I don't believe the government has told us the whole truth. We have to be skeptical do I believe everything the government told us about it? Absolutely not. And so, in keeping with the internet, the famous internet poem, Roses are red, Harambe's in heaven, Bush had prior knowledge of 9-11. In keeping with that poem, Vivek Ramaswamy, you have won the week. Now, in fairness, 
afterwards, a spokesperson came out and said he was referring to the Saudi involvement okay. and whether or okay. not there was more that had to be disclosed. And he wasn't questioning whether George Bush, Bush. did it. Did <laughs> Inside job on the Twin Towers. That's a good, good, good fact check. Good fact check. Yeah. So, so I appreciate the community notes. Could have fooled me. <laughs> I will say the first when I you saw, haven't told us enough. When, when I first saw that, asking him a question, and to his credit, he also said he has no uh, uh, knowledge of facts that would dispute whether the moon landing is in fact authentic. <laughs> but it does. It does give you a good insight into what we're dealing with with this sort of internet punditry yeah where we're talking like pure insanity mm-hmm. on a day-to-day like do you think that george w bush did 9-11 You're and our candidates are like 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 vivek had to nuance it right like what wasting his time with an unwinnable constituency i mean they're just there for jokes and memes you don't have to win them they don't, they don't care. But it's also like less than 1% of the population. I mean, these are like very, very small minority of people who like sit around in, pe- in sweatpants and talk about Bitcoin all afternoon. Right. Like, it, it's just not the fact that they dominate so much of our presidential politics at this stage, I think is a real problem. Mm-hmm. It's a real problem. It's not just a problem on the right, by the way. The left is more insane. Because there's a, on occasion we get the real issues. Yeah, yeah. There's a real there's a real misconception out there among consultants about which constituencies you have to feed and um, where you need to spend your time, and it's it's hurting some of these candidates. It just, I mean, it really is. I I mean, I think somebody's convinced Vivek. He just has to like mirror back to whoever he's talking to with something he thinks they want to hear. You know, the statement he put out after the Trump indictment dropped, he said, Donald Trump isn't the cause of what happened on January 6th. But this guy did a book last year in 2022. Would you like to hear what he wrote in 2022, literally last year about January 6th? Please. Quote, it was a dark day for democracy. The loser of the last election refused to concede the race, claimed the election was stolen, raised hundreds of millions of dollars from loyal supporters, and is running for executive office again. That sounds different. I haven't heard that lately. That feels a diff- that feels, feels like different. a different tone, huh? That feels a little different. Feels a little different. <laughs> Very weird. So that's his winner of the week. <laughs> anyway... Anyway, <laughs> Harambe's in heaven. Yeah. Bush had prior knowledge of nine eleven. That's all he wanted. Yeah. That's why he, he just really wanted to get that. That's in it. That's it's all good. he wanted. I love that. You know, so uh, so so uh, back to your point, Holmes. On on you know nobody really drawing c- contrast on this uh, indictment of Trump. I think Pence actually. I mean, like this is his moment, right? Yeah. I mean, I think I think in a large part this is the reason why he's running the race in the first place. Um, and he actually said the thing that I think any person with eyes and ears knows to be true and obvious, even if they're a Donald Trump supporter at this point. And that is, quote, sadly, the president was surrounded by a group of crackpot lawyers that kept telling him what his itching ears wanted to hear. Pretty good. Pretty good. A hundred percent accurate. A hundred percent accurate, dude. Just listen. Go, go back, go back. Do yourself a favor and just like Google on YouTube Sidney Powell's <laughs> press conference at the RNC when she's talking about seizing the voting machines. Well, if you were there, yeah, 
<laughs> I mean, lunatic stuff. Lunatic stuff. So, I mean, Pence is my winner of the week for that reason and that reason alone is like, this is his week of the campaign. I think this is the reason he's running. And if anybody's going to be able to draw a contrast, it's going to be the guy who was sitting there getting screamed at by Donald Trump. Well, you know what? It, here's the thing. Uh, that was my selection. Oh, well. I, I was going to say Mike Pence because, because uh, many of the things that you said, but also a tremendously authentic response to all of this stuff. It's put him in the center of the news for the first time during his candidacy. He's drawing contrast on an issue that he cares deeply about that, as you said, might very well be the reason he's running in the first place. I've, I have always thought it is incredibly uncomfortable for Mike Pence to run, having been Donald Trump's vice president, not being critical of Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Like a very, very difficult, you know, if he's like, he's talked about on, on the program, how, how, he, how proud he was of the work that they did during the Trump administration. He's not going to be critical of that. Okay, then why are you running? Because that guy's got a 30 point lead and he was in charge of it. And if you're good with that, what's the reason you're running? I think this week we found out why. Yeah. Right. Because there was one very, very significant demarcation that led him to believe that he was Donald Trump was critically and fundamentally flawed and now he's saying it and so whether that has constituency within the primary electorate or not I don't know bro just imagine imagine calling somebody being like Merry Christmas sir (laughs) (laughs) like are you gonna overturn the election for me or what Can you imagine that? <laughs> well, it's kind of like how he, when he called Christy from the the his deathbed. Yeah. And it was like, uh, didn't ask him how he was doing. It was like, you're not going to blame me for this, are you? Right. <laughs> just, like, just, just, just put yourself there. You know, you've just maybe read Advent. You know, you got your Christmas jammies on. You're going to give the president a, a, a call. <laughs> and it goes down like that. <laughs> You just, I mean, you just put on some some Christmas yeah. tunes, yeah. Maman or kerchief, and I in my cap. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's rough stuff. How about that alternative slate, Mike? What do you think? <laughs> oh man, it wasn't gonna work. It wasn't gonna work. But look, I understand, and there's probably an awful lot of people listening to this that you think that there is this sort of well orchestrated usage of government power to try to undercut Donald Trump and try to disqualify him basically from running. Um, And there may be elements of that uh, to be true. What I know is true is that there is certainly a discrepancy between how they handle Donald Trump and the expediency by which that they bring all these charges and how they handle Hunter Biden and investigations that currently are not underway about Joe Biden other than by House Republicans. Yeah. Uh, there is a difference between that. But you have two things to consider. One is you probably should wait to see how these trials pan out. Two is, does this guy give you the best chance to beat Joe Biden? And you're going to have to make that decision on your own. If you think that anybody can beat Joe Biden and that Donald Trump is the best suited to try to effectuate the change you'd like to see in government, I can understand why you're a Donald Trump voter. I get it. If you have any concerns about whether somebody can get to 270 electoral votes, you may want to look at the polling on some of this stuff mm-hmm. because it doesn't it doesn't look good. This one in particular really doesn't look good. Mm-hmm. And you may not agree with that, 
But those are the hard truths that Republican voters are going to have to face. And I understand right now nobody wants to. Yeah, but people listen to the program for some of those hard truths. I know there are a lot of people in our line of work in the lead up to January 6th who were telling you a bunch of bullshit that wasn't true and convinced a lot of people that things could happen that couldn't happen. And I think yeah. they lied to you. And I don't care if you don't like it. I'm not going to sit here every day and do a podcast and tell you things I don't believe. And I also don't think that, I mean, the thing, I think the thing that makes me the most angry about the way the consulting class and ultimately the candidates have, have handled all of this legal morass that we find ourselves in, I don't believe they believe it either. I, I don't think that any of the candidates believe that uh, Donald Trump is a political prisoner. I don't think that they believe that he's unfairly targeted at all. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I mean, look, I've talked to a lot of them. I don't think they think that. Mm-hmm. But that's what's coming out. And that's the message to voters right now is that like, we're all on the same page about how Donald Trump is an innocent, you know, bystander to a left wing prosecution against him. And I don't think anybody thinks that. Well, look, before we wrap up our winner of the week segment, I think we should go to Smug and see who he thinks the winner of the week is. The candle is still burning. Maybe he'll tell us when he comes home. Uh, All right. So let's go to, you guys see the story about the collie? Yes. So we need some animal news. This collie, this is unbelievable. What happened with the collie? This is according to the New York Post. A uh, man who spent $14,000 to transform himself into a collie steps out for his first <laughs> ever walk in public. <laughs> a Japanese native has transformed himself into a canine after forking out more than $14,000 for a custom-made collie costume. The private citizen who goes only by Taco? Toko? <laughs> to- to- toko? Toko or Taco? Should, should go by Lassie now. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. He says the unusual garment has helped actualize his dream of becoming an animal. Come on. Yeah, footage shared by Toko's YouTube channel where he boasts more than 32,000 subscribers. That son of a bitch. He has more subscribers. Guys, subscribe to the YouTube. Subscribe I to refuse, the... I refuse to have a YouTube with less subscribers than <laughs> fucking Lassie. Come if, on. If we get to 50,000, will you get in a dog costume? Not if it costs fourteen thousand dollars. <laughs> We're running a tight ship here. Well, it shows him clad in a costume as he frolics on the lawn and rolls on the floor and plays fetch. Toko's even uploaded a video of himself venturing out in public as the dog for the very first time. Ba- bystanders appeared to be in awe of the man doggy. Uh, his debut paraded down a busy street in a viral clip, which has racked up more than one point seven million views. You know what? After reading this. Forget everything we just said in the last two segments. We're fucked. You might as well just like pop the champagne and yeah. and let the music play on the Titanic. Yeah, this is this is get one last dance in. Folks. Not a good. This sign. is all we've got. Yeah, it's not a good fu- sign. Gabriel, for blow the trumpets. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what are they doing? What are they, the mental health crisis that has beseeched our country? I mean, the wildest thing to me is that in this photo where. Toko is in uh, the Lassie outfit. There's a human being like there's walking, a woman walking him. Like this person, <laughs> this person has this person has friends. This well, you know, you know, you can't have an unaccompanied dog yeah, in that's the park. Right. That's right. You're gonna get sent to the pound. So, you what know. if he got euthanized in the? <laughs> <laughs> they give Taco the long needle. <laughs> We 
would like to find a home for him. And like everybody now, thanks to the New York Post, knows. And they're like, Mm-mm, I'm not having that dude live in my house. And so Taco gets the long needle. <laughs> Unbelievable. Let us know if you would adopt Taco. I, I'm just telling you, there's no way. If that guy, if that guy gets set to the pound, he's getting it. Yeah. He's getting it. They, oh. there's, a, there's a clock. They put a clock on those dogs. <laughs> All right, so did you guys see the story? Another New York Post thing. McDaniel's really hot on the Post today. They have good content. They do have good content. Um, it's about it's from these people who they stayed in a glass hotel room, mm-hmm. uh, and people kept asking them if they would have sex. Wait, what? Yeah. So Margaret, thirty three, and Corey uh, Bunert, Bunert, Bunair, Bunair, maybe. Hmm. I don't know. Uh, they stayed in a glass room in the lobby of a hotel in Ibiza. And claimed the people kept tapping on the glass and recording them, as well as asking if they would have sex. <laughs> I've been a content creator long enough to know that you don't do something like that for free," said Margaret. <laughs> oh God! <laughs> I love I love how I love how she's not even offended. She's just like, "There's a price tag for that." <laughs> <laughs> They're staying in a glass hotel room in the lobby of a hotel. They know what's up. They knew what was up. Yeah. I mean, so, all right, so apparently what they do here is that they have a hotel that's basically, this is like a like a gimmick yeah, to get people to do it, and then people, like, watch them. Yeah. And and it's it's a, a room that's entirely of glass. So it's can, like a modern art installation almost sort of thing. Yeah, and that's kind of part of the point is yeah. that there's an artistic element to it. The bottom line is, is, like, you're just living in a hotel room with everybody watching you do your, th- do your stuff. Yeah. And, like... They were surprised to encounter humans asking them to have sex. I mean. What else would you be walking by the glass? You wanted to see him take a shit? <laughs> no, seriously. I, like, what else, what, what, what else is going on there? You got a couple sleeping in a glass room. What do you want to see him do, brush his teeth? What, why would they do that? Why, why would, <laughs> what I don't understand is... We just talked about a guy who spent fourteen grand to turn himself into a dog. It's like the Shaggy Dog comes to life, the Disney movie. And now we got people living in a glass house, like volunteering to be in the Truman Show. The global society <laughs> is not healthy. No, we're not in a good spot. We're not in a good spot. We are not in a good spot. We are. I mean. We got a good chance of both nominees giving giving their convention addresses from fucking San Quentin, and we've got we've got people living in glass houses and turning themselves into Lassie. Holy shit, we are in a bad place, fellas. Really, uh, this is not good. I don't think I've ever been more depressed than the Ruthless Ride. This program. is a real black pilled episode. Oh my! You know God. what? Eisenhower may not have been the most handsome guy on the planet, but he didn't do any of this. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe he didn't give the best. Speeches. What do you think? What do you think your your wives would do if you were like, "Hey, I got a real nice place. It's going to be great." And you get your key, and all of a sudden yeah. she walks in. and She's like, "We're standing in the lobby of a hotel in a glass room." And you're like, "Yeah, this is it. This is I, where we. This is where you we know, I, I she kill I, you, right? Under under no circumstances could I ever imagine her. It'd be a pretty funny goof, though." <laughs> She'd be like, no, really, where's the room? <laughs> and then just turn around and walk out. Honey, yeah. they want a show. <laughs> Honey, they want a show. The people. <laughs> Give the people what they want. <laughs> There's no way. Wouldn't work. No chance. There's no way. 
But I mean, I do find I do find a level of humor in this that they it's, you know that they that they actually think that this is something that people are going to want to watch. Just kind of like sit on the couch and God watch ble- TV. Watch me watch TV. God bless the New York Post and their news gathering ability. That's good stuff. It's good stuff. Um, all right, so I got a kick out of this last one here. Uh, this was in Town Hall. Uh, Biden allies spread photoshopped pictures of the president to prove he's fit. For a second term. Now I've noticed this. Have you guys noticed this? Yeah. There yeah. was one a few days ago of him in a white shirt mm-hmm. where his head like dead definitely did not look like it fit whatever body that was on. Yeah, it's like it's Instagram like face tuned, you know? Yeah. It, it, I mean something was definitely like they, like they increased the contrast, they gave more like flush to his cheeks, like made him look like, They also puffed out the yeah, shirt a yeah. little bit, made him look like he had been, you know. Like, like doing a, the push-ups. Like he was a 45-year-old man, basically. Yeah, right. And that's exactly, that's not what he is. No. Uh, a growing number of Americans believe President Biden is too old for a second term in office. White House allies are employing a desperate strategy to convince voters that the president is fit enough to serve. They're photoshopping Biden's pictures. And they've got an example, uh, which is really, truly remarkable, uh, where it shows him looking every bit of 80. Yeah. And then next to it, looking tan- and like different mm-hmm. right that's like a whiter smile a tanner a tanner face mm-hmm. and he's got so anyway their efforts appear to be uh part of a months-long campaign to sway the 68 percent of voters who think that he's too old is this for real it's for real i mean this is actually happening well he, here's the thing if it's a republican it is a dishonest tack by cynical campaign aides to try to fool voters, and it's written in the New York Times. If it's a Democrat, it's a long-running effort to try to show that Joe Biden's capable of doing the job. It's just savvy. It's just savvy work is what Savvy it is. stuff. And actually, nobody picked it up except for town hall. Yeah, the, the, the fascinating thing, I think, in here is, well, really two things. is Number one, one of the edited photos even retained its original Getty Images watermark. Oh, so they changed the 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 Getty photo, right? I mean, I'm Wait, sure that's a copyright violation. hundred percent. But are they gonna are they gonna try to enforce it? No chance. Oh, you no think chance. Getty's Getty's not making the call. Well, I mean, after they're listening to the show, maybe they will. But that but. would that would mean that photo is for edit editorial use in various publications all around the country, not knowing it's a photo that's been photoshopped to make him look twenty years younger. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa you're whoa, saying. Whoa, whoa. Whoa, whoa. That this Photoshop version is now the official Getty version? Well, th- what what Town Hall says is one edited photo even retained its original Getty Images watermark, adding to its supposed authenticity. So I think what what they're saying though is that it it retained that to make it appear oh, as though they kept it on, but they kept it on after Sneaky. altering the photo. So it wasn't actually. They're not. I don't think they're accusing Getty of altering. Huh. The photo. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. Well, so I thought maybe they uploaded it to Getty. No. No. Doesn't appear like they did. But this isn't just like going around on random Twitter accounts. It's being amplified by Malcolm Nance, John Cooper, former White House (laughs) Chief of Staff Ron Klain. (laughs) Oh, my God. Yeah. This is like a real thing. This is a real psyop. So this is actually like happening. Yeah. Tanned, smooth, features of a confident smile. The caption reads, as I have said before... If they want to make this campaign about fitness, game on. Wow. And so they actually go they actually go directly at it. Yeah. It's not like it's like look at this photoshopped picture and see how fit I am. Right. 
and then that's what we're going to run on. And they're like, but that's not a real picture. And yeah. nobody's, nobody's like, hey, uh, Mr. President, that picture is fake. Dude, it's the catfish campaign. Oh, my It's a catfish God. campaign. Incredible. And they're going to let him get away with it. Because yeah. every newspaper in the English-speaking world that writes in the mainstream press does the same thing in print for the guy on a daily basis. Yeah, the problem, though, is when he has to go on the campaign trail in 2024... I think the facade's going to fall apart pretty quickly. It feels you're, like there's a assuming, real problem. You're assuming yeah. he's going to go on the campaign. Yeah, maybe he won't. He'll do the hologram Michael Jackson thing. Well, maybe. at this point, does he need to? Yeah. You know, I mean, other than, like I said, uh, maybe a cell visit next June. <sighs> <laughs> God, it's just so pathetic and embarrassing. Uh, uh, here we are, though, and I think it's time for a game to lighten things up. What do you think, fellas? Yeah, I do. Um, I got David. I'm taking David from. Okay, so you're you've got from, uh, and Ashbrook's our champion, correct? Yeah, Ashbrook is our champion, and I think look, you have Sherry. Mm-hmm, that's exactly. This that's is right. the one benefit, by the way, of the rotating cast and crew. We're actually in our actual spots here yeah where we can execute a game despite the fact that smug is not here that is a strength of it yeah he and he was going to be bailiff which he loves being bailiff he does but he also put out that thing on twitter that he was accepting a 90-day sentence that nobody yeah, levied upon him self-imposed so he wouldn't nope. have to, just it, so he wouldn't have to do work i want your listener i want the listeners to understand this smug unilaterally took to twitter to punish himself for misrepresenting yeah. one of the tweets yeah in doing that he suggested that he would accept a 90-day prohibition from competition. Yeah. That was never discussed <laughs> and certainly never levied by the competition committee here at King of the Hill. Uh, he did that for the same reason he loves to be bailiff. Yeah. Because he didn't want to actually have to look up the tweets. That's right. So Well, I think we'll uh, carry on in his absence here. Uh, let's go ringside. Ladies and gentlemen, your attention, please. It's time for King of the Hill in the red corner, fighting from a draft of his weekly op-ed. David, where did you come from? <laughs> and now, in the blue corner, fighting out of her own Twitter account, and current champion of the world, Kami Cherry Jacobus. Beautiful. <laughs> Just beautiful. It's always well done. It's always well done. And I've noticed that we have an extra crowd react lately. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they're getting amped, you know? They're big into it. Yeah. It's a big time. You see, we're almost getting into the fall. Yeah, people yeah. are getting excited. They got their stuff out there. All right, so the champion's got to go, right? Yeah. Uh, what exhibit are you playing first here so Wolf can pull it up? Okay, Wolf, um, let's start with exhibit three, please. Uh, this is, <laughs> oh, a, is this? a photograph of a bottle of wine. <laughs> um, the label appears to be um, obscured. And uh, the label, uh, the bottle is sort of described as follows. The first part of the bottle is described as, Grandma, you're looking lovely tonight. That's what Sherry Jacobus mm -hmm. describes as the first, I'd say, 5% of the bottle. The middle third is, look, you guys, 
I just think healthcare is a universal right. That's the middle third of the bottle of wine, and then she gets to the final uh, few glasses, and she says, Cousin John, you're a fascist, and the revolution will not spare you. (laughs) (laughs) This is the way Cherry Jacobus describes a bottle of wine. It's interesting. Well, I think... I don't want to besmirch her, but it appears based on the last couple of games that perhaps... There's an alcohol problem. I mean, all I'm going to say is it seems like she gets to the bottom of every single bottle before (laughs) she presses send. (laughs) We're laughing. We're joking. Joking. Parody. We certainly not assert such things. Yeah. Drink uh, responsibly. Okay. Okay. For David Frum in my rejoinder, if it pleases the court, Mm -hmm. I'd like to bring up exhibit five, if you will, Wolf. If Zelensky had surrendered to Trump's extortion in 2019, who knows where we'd be today? Hero of two democracies. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Holy cow. Now, I will add uh, for the court's consideration that we found out just this week before uh, this had come into our view that the very Ukraine that he is talking about right. here, uh, that was the subject of Trump's interaction, right, uh, was to try to uncover whether or not there was corruption by Joe Biden and Hunter Biden in the firing of a prosecutor who was trying to prosecute Hunter's uh, company that was paying him tens of millions of dollars. Yeah. Amazing backdrop for a tweet. Yeah, like. well, yeah, that's that's the thing that's most stunning for me is like, you know, if you would have told me this tweet was from... Yeah, 2018. Yeah, 2018, 2019, like during that impeachment on the Ukraine call or afterwards or whatever, like I, I would, I'd get it. Like this would be a standard from tweet. This was the worst possible time to tweet this thing because we're at the point of maximum evidence that in fact Trump was on to something. <laughs> And in fact, fact, the tape all week has been playing of Joe Biden saying he was extorting Ukraine for the firing of the prosecutor. It's just, I mean, look, the Sherry tweet is fantastic, but it is it is in the grand tapestry of wine tweets that she produces. It's funny. It is nothing compared to this. This stands separate and alone as the craziest thing you could say in the context of everything we've learned this week. For that reason, Holmes wins round one. Okay. Round two, are you going to go for the knockout here? Mm-hmm. I got some bangers from From this week. Okay. How did the DeSantis... Oh, hold on. Oh, I'm sorry, Exhibit 7. Wolf, Exhibit 7, I'd like all of the people to have a, a view of this. How did the DeSantis campaign maneuver itself into arguments over, quote, was slavery partly good, unquote, and, quote, are Nazis kind of sexy, unquote. You'd imagine they'd want to talk about other things. Interesting. (laughs) What he is uh, referring to, of course, is the controversy over the curriculum, at which no point uh, was it ever asserted, even by his critics, that uh, he suggested that slavery was good. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the Nazis kind of sexy, I assume is in reference to a web video yeah. that uh, had some interaction by the DeSantis war room that ultimately was outsourced to others that contained an image uh, that had been 
propagated by Nazi Germany at one point. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. I assume that's what he's talking about. Yes. At no point did I hear uh, Ron DeSantis talking about any of these two. But that's a nice distillation from, from. Wow. Ashbrook, what do you got? Uh, exhibit two, please. The Lincoln Project cost Dems the House majority. They pocketed tens of millions in 2020 in a year. Dems were supposed to gain seats to cushion against expected 2022 midterm losses. Instead, House Dems lost seats and were underfunded. Average successful House campaign is $2 million. Wow. Sherry Jacobus, Sherry Jacobus wants Democrats to win the majority. This is a former Republican who is arguing for marshalling resources on the left to help Democrats win the majority. So if this is a game where you have a former Republican who is making outrageous statements, yes, I think it enters a new category when not only are they <laughs> criticizing Trump, they are providing advice to help Democrats win in the next election. Yeah, I don't, I don't disagree with her advice. However, uh, no, it's like I have a sound mind in in terms of Sherry's. Well, yeah, though, but I think Ashbrook brings up a good point, and there's precedent for this. I think a lot of which uh, that a lot of these people who have, you know, conservative opinions before, make strategy and tactical suggestions for how Democrats can win elections, and this is, of course, one of those thing so i think it has merit on those terms i do agree that she happens to be correct about this and i find that fucking hilarious you know broken clock right um and her clock's super broken super, so that's like super know. broken yeah um okay well that's something um so i got that and i got the uh desantis loves nazis and thinks slavery is good tweet Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think ultimately, and I see what you're going for there, Ashbrook. I think that it cuts, the the problem is, is it, it's cutting both ways for me. And the from thing is just patently offensive <laughs> at a base level. And of obviously he knows better and chooses to be ignorant. And for that reason, I think it's a two-round knockout knockout for David Frum. <laughs> I love it. You know, this was a this was a tough week for Cherry. Is uh, that right? You know, Babe Ruth had games where he didn't get a hit. And yeah. I think that this past week, Cherry's tweets just were not on Sherry Sherry. Just gracious and defeat as always, John Ashley. Very, very gracious. I appreciate your competition. Uh, if you don't mind, before we close things out, I'd like to just submit for the court what my closer was going to be. Oh, oh okay. Uh, what, what exhibit here? It's exhibit six. Okay. Don't overlook this New York civil fraud case. It's not as constitutionally significant as today's federal criminal indictment, but the evidence evidence against Trump, his organization, and his family is strong. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. There is literally, you could go to find the left reaches of the legal community and not stumble upon a single human being. Yeah, none of them. Not, I mean, I was shocked when that indictment came out, how like, you you had like left wing hacks were like, Yeah, you ain't got it. Yeah. <laughs> Not for from. He's strong. Strong. He really is blazed like in all of these takes, he's really blazing his own path here. 
Oh, he you really know, is. He could have some staying power. He could. He could. You never know. You never know. Oh. All right, we got a great interview that we got to get to here. This is Christopher Rufo. I want to welcome to the program somebody you've heard here before. Uh, he is a gentleman, and he is doing great work. I think the last time he was on here was sort of at the beginning of of his star power that has now exploded across this country working to try to expose what we saw in educational systems across this country initially in terms of the leftist agenda. I'm talking, of course, about Chris Rufo. He's out with a new book, America's Cultural Revolution. Chris, how are you? Doing really well. Great to be here. Hey, man. Uh, thanks for doing this and thanks for doing all the work. You know, I mean, Look, I typically, when people get into your line of work, you didn't choose, as you recall, we, we talked about this last time, you didn't choose this area, it sort of chose you. And you stumbled upon a whole bunch of information that the rest of the country had no idea about at a culturally critical time uh, and started telling the world about it. And you have, for better or worse, become the messenger for what the woke left is doing in various establishments throughout this country. Yeah, that's right. It is kind of a, a, an, an interesting role that I stumbled into and, and uh, first by accident and now uh, with some design and some intention. And, um, you know, I, I think that it's 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 critical that the, that I'm trying to figure out, hey, how are people feeling in the country? What's happening with their institutions? What are their intuitions? And then substantiating that or investigating whether or not it's true and exposing some of those radical left-wing ideologies that are so pervasive, um, but they needed documentation. They needed a champion against what they were doing. Um, and then I think that what was really important, it's been really fun since we last spoke, is turning some of these, you know, loosely, loosely called anti-woke uh, uh, ideas um, into actual policies. So yeah. working with people uh, uh, across the country to say, you know, you don't have to just submit to these ideas. You don't have to, you know, post the black square or, you know, agree that uh, a man is a woman or a woman is a man. You can actually say no. Um, and this is how to do it and, and try to lead the way. Well, it's been incredible. You've been an inspiration for a lot of people. I think more importantly, you've been an education for an awful lot of people who, for better or worse, uh, were basically blind to what was happening behind closed doors in corporate America and obviously in our educational community uh, and throughout. And you've got a new book out. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about that? So it's really interesting. As I was doing all of this reporting and activism on the surface, that was really what was taking up um, all of my public time. I was actually spending most of my time behind the scenes, working on this book, doing the deep research, hitting the archives, and trying to trace these ideas backwards and to figure out where do these ideologies come from? How have they attained power? How have they moved through all of our institutions with seemingly rapid speed? And so America's Cultural Revolution, which uh, debuted last week as the number one bestseller on Amazon. Matt, congratulations, the New York by Times. the way. That's just uh, awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, it hit the New York Times bestseller um, and we celebrated last week. And But what it really does is it, it tells the, the hidden story of the radical left's long march through the institutions. It tells people where all these ideas come from and then how they've actually uh, attached themselves to administrative power in the United States. And so it's almost like um, the origins of left-wing ideologies. And then at the end of the book, I also try to suggest, here's a pattern. If we, if we think that America is undergoing a kind of cultural revolution, um, here is a, a prescription or a basic outline of how the right and how conservatives could wage a counter-revolution against it. 
um, which I think is becoming more and more necessary. We can't have the simple um, 2002 politics anymore. Right. Um, we have to have something different. And I think that this book really lays out the marker for what's to come. Well, it's it's fascinating. And I think you're entirely right in that politics have changed how you deal with leftist insurgency attempts to sort of ingrain a, a very different cultural view than what America has had historically. It requires different. Uh, uh, but it seems like people are sort of responding to that. Of, of course, everybody thinks about Bud Light. You think about Target. Um, but like Jason Aldean, for example, now number one uh, with his new song after the left sort of went after him. It seems to me, and you tell me because you're sort of at the at the precipice of all this. It seems to me like conservatives are market movers here for maybe the first time in my lifetime. I, I agree. And I think that uh, some of those cases that you outlined are very important because conservatives, you know, we're slowly learning how to flex our economic muscle. We're slowly learning how to have a spine uh, when when there are the attacks leveled against us or people that are aligned with us. Um, and this is something that we actually see in not just businesses, but conservatives are getting more engaged in local school board elections than they have mm -hmm. in generations. Yeah, um, we have great candidates running in, in, in hundreds upon hundreds of school districts trying to get the critical race theory out, get the gender ideology out, um, get some of this, uh, uh, this some of some of the, the most toxic and poisonous left-wing ideas um, out of the curriculum and getting back towards the truth, back towards a, a positive vision of our country. Um, and then you're even seeing big movements to reform something like academia, which conservatives have basically given up on, yeah. or had, had given up on for decades. Oh, academia is lost. There's nothing we can do about it. Just try to seal it off and and, and, and try to, to isolate ourselves from it. Conservatives are actually saying, hey, wait a minute. We have majorities in, in conservative states in the legislature. We have the governor's mansions. These are public universities in many cases. Um, and we have the democratic power. So let's start using it to uh, restrain some of these uh, activities, to abolish some of these really political and ideological DEI departments, and then to recruit conservative faculty into the universities through these specialized centers. So we're seeing the very beginning of a conservative counter-revolution, retaking the institutions. But the reason I wrote this book is to give everyone that's in the fight or sees it around themselves in their daily life a real sense of the history of how things came to be and how we can change them. And I think it's critically important to understand exactly what's happening and have all the information, all of the evidence, all of the arguments laid out. And so when you go to that school board meeting, when you're talking about, uh, you know, uh, you know, the Bud Light's uh, latest marketing campaign, when you're, um, you know, going to the uh, uh, to a, a political event and talking about government, you know exactly what's happening. You can see through some of the platitudes and euphemisms and even the conservatives, who, the, the, the very few conservatives, fortunately, who still don't know what's happening. Um, you, you can really reach and persuade those people. Well, it's all important information. I, you know, what I find so funny about your story is that, you, you know, you're this normal guy who's like a documentary filmmaker and, you know, by no means like a college Republican, right? And now, no. and now you find yourself, <laughs> yeah, sort of close to the center of a cultural war here that we're having. Uh, that that trip's got to be an interesting one. Yeah, you know, it's like, uh, it, it, it really is. And I think it's so funny because I have 
this image uh, in the public sphere, especially among some yeah, of my right. opponents on, on the left, that I am like a fire-breathing, rock-ribbed, you know, conservative polemicist, take no prisoners. And and I love that. I love that mode of speaking. That's that's what I, you know, that's what I do. That's what I found to be most successful in actually moving the debate and moving public policy forward. Um, but but to all of my closest friends and family. They must find uh, it hilarious. You know, they, they think it's hilarious. They're like, you're a laid back California kid um, who's gotten um, passionate on these issues and, and, and authentically fighting for them. Um, but I, I, I sometimes think if the if the country were different, if the politics were different, um, I don't know if I would find myself in the place that I am. And so um, I, I think that it's important that people like me who may not even have been engaged on these issues are starting to feel the same way that I felt. Um, so outraged and so um, uh, uh, just deeply concerned about what's happening in our institutions that in a pragmatic sense and I think in a philosophical sense have shifted far to the right what might have been different given different circumstances. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, it, 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 it's fun. It's fun to play with the image. It's fun to play with the different kind of how media perceives you versus how you really are in your daily life. And uh, I've made something of a game out of it. Uh, so try to try to have fun and, you know, try to try to try to lean into this, uh, you know, this character. Um, well, that's what, uh, that's what I was going to ask you. I mean, I, yeah. look, obviously you're still going, you're pumping out great material. You get number one bestsellers and everything else. But for a guy who you know, probably didn't intend to get into the center of a political debate that has taken over our country. Uh, look, people take that different ways. And obviously you become a center of a, the attacks on the left from the left. Um, but you seem to be able to deal with this with a good sense of humor. I mean, that not everybody's got that. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, it's a process of learning though. I mean, at the beginning it's, it's, it's terrifying. It's yeah. frightening. And uh, so if you think about all those conservatives or even just average people that get attacked by the media in a very significant way, um, I feel a lot of sympathy for them because when that when those first hits come, there's a, a, a fear that your life could be obliterated, that you could be have your reputation destroyed, that you could be, um, you know, have your livelihood in, in total jeopardy. And yeah. so um, at the beginning, it's very frightening. But something really amazing happens after that. You get through that first wave of attacks. You kind of, you know, you're, it's almost, it's like you hear gunfire and then you kind of tap your body and say, all right, there's no holes. I'm, I'm, I'm going to survive, you know. And then you realize that, that, that they really can't hurt you, hmm. that you actually have to uh, concede to them. You have to agree with them. You have to actually give them permission to hurt you. Um, and so when you get on the other side of that fear, when you get through that first barrage of attacks, you have a, a, a tremendous sense of freedom and openness, and 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 you you really understand that a lot of it is um, kind of an illusion. Some of these attacks, there's there's a certain postmodern and um, artificial quality to it. And so once you realize that, you get through it. You feel confident. You understand how it works. You get through a couple of those then you can kind of just dust them yeah. right off. And then you get to the point after that, which is the point that I'm in now that is even more fun is, you actually can play with them. You can lean into them, you can lean out, you can pick and choose which controversies you want to engage in. You can even actually start controversies when it's useful to you. Um, you know, So there is a kind of art to it, 
there is a, a state, it's almost like a great uh, drama mm-hmm. and you can be the stage manager of this and without as much fear. Obviously, you always have fear. You don't want to screw up. You don't want to say the wrong thing. You don't want to step in it or, or, or make a mistake that's exploited. You're going to ha- get hit. You're going to, you know, feel upset. You're going to get, you know, uh, taken down a notch and, and humbled. Um, but then you're actually in politics. You, 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 if you, you can find joy in mm-hmm. some of these fights. You can find, um, creativity uh, in some of these conflicts. And, and, and that's ultimately how I think that we should all approach it. Those of us, and I know that you feel this way too, who actually love politics. Yeah. Um, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a way, I think the best way to approach it. Well, and a good sense of humor doesn't, doesn't hurt either. Right. I mean, you, yeah, got, you can laugh at all of it. <laughs> One of the things I've admired the most about you in your on-ramp to all of this is your commitment to the facts, your commitment to exactly what's happening and sort of an unassailable ability to show people what is happening despite the fact that the left either ignores that it exists or attacks you as a racist for having bring it brought it up in the first place you're stuck with the facts now that is not the case for everything around us on the left or the right in a debate that is inherently online it's inherently everywhere that's very animated and yet you've been able to stick to your lane with a lot of integrity sticking only to the facts and and i wonder how difficult that is as you said you pick and choose sort of where you engage when people want you to engage in everything yeah that's i mean that's a great question and and look if you're a politician you have to engage on every issue. I yeah. mean, that's you are a, a gen, you're elected for your general competence and your the, your breadth of knowledge and decision making capacity. So, if someone's talking about immigration, you talk immigration. If someone's talking about the budget, you talk budget. Um, but for 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 someone like me, who's a think tank employee, journalist, activist, um, I found it really powerful to just focus on a few issues and then. What I've been doing is I've been doing adjacent issues every year. So first it was critical race theory, then it was gender ideology, then this year it's been DEI bureaucracy, but it's still among this tight cluster of issues. And so I have deep expertise and I restrain myself from, con- I even, sometimes I'll tweet something and then immediately delete it when I'm saying, you know, that's just not on topic for me. I don't have to opine about this. I have an opinion, I have a feeling, I have a thought. But it, it, it really, I'm not adding much to the debate by engaging. And in fact, you can only serve to maybe even um, dissuade or, or alienate certain allies. And so I try to stay as focused as I can. I try not to take the bait on some of these uh, yeah. hot takes and hot topics. And it's I hard, that, right? Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard. hard. Yeah. It, 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 it's, it, it is hard, yeah. A lot of discipline to sort of figure out look, this is what I do, and this is where I add the most to this debate. And ultimately, if we're successful in advocating towards the kind of country that I'm advocating for, I got I to gotta sit on my hands on a couple of these pitches uh, and not and not just get involved in absolutely everything. Yeah, I got you got to let those hot takes simmer a little bit, you know, maybe turn the stove off. Yeah, but y- you do. And I, and I think that, um, I, look, I, I think that that's really important because um, – I've just found it to be most effective. And ultimately what I try to do and my political practice is I try to work backwards from the outcome I would like to see. And then I try to structure the work that I do and, and, and iterate on the work that I do and, and kind of tinker with the work that I do, moving backwards from that goal. And so I try to always, and I don't always do this perfectly. I could I'll do it a lot better, but 
I always try to say, okay, what is the like, what is the most payoff? What should I be doing to get towards this goal? And then try to weed out or pare down anything that doesn't lead towards that. And uh, and I'll tell you the the most difficult thing. And 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 you guys have fun in the in the kind of commentary, but. The most difficult thing is avoiding the horse race politics. Yeah, for the you, primary it's campaign, just really rough. The Bidens, yeah. the Hunter. It's like, <laughs> oh my, I, you know, sometimes I'm like, I, I want to talk about this, but you know, if you wait in on the primary, for example, <laughs> I mean, half the people are going to hate you. Half yeah. the people, are, and it's like, there's really no win there. And I have my support. I've, I've, you know, endorsed the candidate, but I, I think that's like, look. I, I just want my analysis of any kind of campaign is who do I think is most likely to advance the policies that I really yeah. uh, uh, advocate for that I think are most important, but then ultimately then which which party is going to. And so, look, whoever wins the primary, you know, they have my support. And as such, I, I, I tell myself beyond that, beyond the kind of basic, uh, uh, you know, commitment that you've made. Just shut up. Don't talk <laughs> about it. Don't get baited. You know, if there's MAGA people or there's DeSantis people, like I, I, I see all of this bickering, and it's like, I'm just like trying to get in my my Zen place, you know, trying to yeah. get into the, the to the to the prayer garden and just let them hash it out, and then. Whoever wins, you know, that's that's who I'm with. Yeah, now listen, yeah. I, I get that. And we believe me on this program, we understand that you get friends in all camps and people who who sort of understand what we're trying to do in all camps. And you don't want to alienate people by getting outside your lane. And you've done that just exceptionally, exceptionally well. I wonder, as you're approaching that. America's cultural revolution, how much of this in this book was important to you to just say, Look, you all need to know a little bit of the history of this. This didn't just show up yesterday. You need to understand how this has built over time so you know what it would take if you're going up against this and want to actually reverse what people are doing with DEI and, and the rest. Yeah, it's it's essential. And that's exactly the right uh, the, the right way to think about it as you're as you're describing, because if you think, oh, all of a sudden, all these institutions were doing, you know, pushing the idea that America was systemically racist, that you had white privilege or white fragility, that you needed to advocate for so-called diversity and inclusion, that there's all these bureaucracies that are created to advance these ideas. And you thought that it was something that just magically appeared after George Floyd in 2020. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and in some ways, it felt as if that were true. Yeah. Um, you, you're, you're totally unequipped to be able to fight it. Because you're you're approaching it uh, from the wrong angle, and so what I did was burrow into you know 60, 70 years of history mm. to actually show no, no, no. This is part of a very concerted plan. It's a 50-year long march through the institutions. It's it's taking these radical ideas from the 60s and 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 creating euphemisms for them and embedding them in things like schools and corporations and government agencies and universities, um, and that that. To, in order to reverse it or in order to stop it or in order to, to transcend it, um, you have to first know what you're up against. And you're up against something that is much more deeply rooted than just, you know, the corporation posted the black square in 2020. Um, so you have to know where it comes from uh, if, if you want to hope to get past it. And and this story has never been told. Yeah. And, and I think that this is the story of the late 20th century, the story of the, of the, of the left's conquest of the institutions. And, and, and it hasn't been told and hasn't been documented. It hasn't been substantiated. And I think that it culminates in that summer of 2020 where it became apparent to everyone. But we needed something that took a scholarly approach, um, not even just a polemical approach. I mean, it, it's kind of a more 
scholarly and, and kind of neutral tone in some sense, but laid out this long historical progression. And uh, look, it, 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 you talk to, I talk to people in Congress. I talk to people that are at the, in, in the conservative movement. And, and I'm, I'm shocked that, that even these people in positions of authority and power in politics don't know what we're up against. They don't know what, you know, they say woke and we're going to be anti-woke. It, that's that's great. That's a good shorthand. You got the bumper but, sticker. <laughs> yeah, you get the bumper sticker. But do they know what that actually means? Yeah. Do they know what that entails? Do they know the stakes? And so this book is really, you know, not just for the the average reader, not just for the conservative who's um, has, had, has a reading habit that wants to understand the world, but actually for those people in leadership positions mm. um, to, to go much deeper than I think they've gone. Uh, um, and, and I think it's essential. Oh, it's fascinating. It's just such good work. I'm so glad you've been doing it and you've been at it now. Uh, I'm sure what feels like a lifetime for you. Um, but you know, yeah. in retrospect, like all of this, as you said, it's been going on for decades upon decades and it's become sort of the center of American t- attention over the last three or four years. Let me ask you this. It felt two or three years ago when we've got major league baseball canceling an all-star game in Atlanta and DEI on the rise and in fact mandated in many institutional investments across the country and all of the collegiate stuff going on in, in universities and colleges across this country. It felt like we were losing definitively. Yeah. If you look out here over the last six months, I wouldn't say that conservatives are winning. If they were winning, we wouldn't have to fight the fight in the first place. But it does feel like something's changed, doesn't it? It absolutely does. And, and that's really what I try to lay out in that the final chapter of this book is, is uh, toward a, a conservative counter-revolution and toward a conservative politics that is not um, stuck in the past, that doesn't have the ideological blinkers um, of the kind of Reagan ideology, which served its time and place. I think has a lot of good insights, but ultimately is insufficient. To the problem that we are confronting today, and conservatives are, are are absolutely changing how they think. They're flexing against corporations. Uh, they're they're getting involved in local politics. They're they're starting to say no to some of these policies, like defund the police, in a really persuasive way. And you know, ultimately, I think even if you look at the primary field right now, let's say give or take, you have Trump, DeSantis, Ramaswamy, top three taking up what, about 90% of, of, of the primary voting, uh, primary voters support these three candidates. All three of those candidates, they know that we're facing a cultural revolution. They've discussed that in, in very strong terms and they're promoting a, a cultural policy that is up to the task of, of, of fighting these fights. And so I think that what we're seeing is a consolidation in the conservative movement, not behind a single candidate, opinions differ, but all of the top candidates, all of the candidates that are gaining any sort of steam with the with the conservative uh, primary voters, they have to know the stuff that's in this book. They have to take these culture war issues seriously. They have to offer a very strong defense of American culture against those radical left wing ideologies. And so um, in 2016, Trump broke the, the orthodoxy, the kind of Reagan Bush orthodoxy, which was, I mean, essential. But now this new kind of culture war politics on the right has become the replacement for that. And all of the major serious candidates uh, uh, do so. And those like Asa Hutchinson that want to go back to 1998 um, are, are, you know, they might not even make the debate stage. I mean, they're, they're just not viable. So 
That to me signifies that the, the voters are serious and they're only going to consider, going to consider candidates who are serious. Uh, and that to me true. is a sign that things are changing. Listen, you have, uh, you have correctly diagnosed exactly where we are and it is in no small part thanks to the work that you've done over the last few years. Thank you for continuing to do that. America's Cultural Revolution is out. It's a bestseller. You can get it wherever you get your books. I can't thank you enough, Chris Rufo. Thanks for coming on the program. Thank you so much. Great to talk to you. So I really like him. You know, the thing about Chris is, um, obviously I don't know him well, but we've interviewed him here a couple of times, and he's just such a normal dude. The way that he gets characterized on the left, that, you know, this is some, like, dude who's you know this white guy who's pent up rage against the changing america and all that stuff like it just it's completely diffused when he comes on and says the first word like that's not who this guy is he literally (laughs) found something that he found horribly wrong with our educational system in teaching critical race theory to young children and trying to divide our kids in public education systems and he brought that to the fore and what it led was an examination of every institution of our country and how the left has systematically tried to infuse things like critical race theory or DEI or all these other things into our society and has become offended by it. This is not a dude who like woke up or was from a right wing family who's like, this is my crusade. Yeah, It found him. Right, and, and the media has tried to turn him into this boogeyman uh, on the on the right, you've seen that. And like, look, this is what the left always does when there's a conservative movement out there that's sweeping across the country. I mean, you, if you ever read Saul Linsky's Rule for Radicals, you know the one thing that the left always teaches all of their foot soldiers is when you find the opponent, you name them and you shame them, mm-hmm. you crystallize the opposition. And that's what they've tried to do with the pushback on CRT and all this woke ideology is make you know, Chris Rufo, the pol- the poster boy that they can attack and tear down. And so the fact that he's staying in the fight to do all this stuff, I think is super admirable because there's a whole lot of people who wouldn't want the heat because it's super annoying and these people are so dishonest. Yeah. I mean, look, I'm glad he came back. Yeah. Uh, you'll hear more of him undoubtedly from the future. Go buy that book because I, look, he does, he does a lot of historical stuff that's important. One, one announcement oh, okay. uh, that we forgot to make here on the Variety program. Um, Happy birthday to Matthew Foldy. Oh, oh you're it's right. Foldy's That's birthday. right. Yeah. The big two seven. Big two seven. The the is little guy's that, getting old. He's that young of a man, huh? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I was surprised. Something too. at some point he's gonna have to accomplish something. <laughs> oh, <laughs> uh, oh that's gonna hurt Bonnie. Of course, I'm Bonnie. I'm joking. God, like, yeah. last thing I need is another mom yeah. friend of the program who's uh, pissed at me. I get enough with your mom. It's, yeah. Especially one as accomplished as Bonnie. That's, That's right. exactly right. <laughs> Look right. at you, putting me in a bad spot. Okay, well, fellas, I think we did it. I think we did it. We have a special ending for you. Another banger of an episode, folks. So until next time, minions, keep the faith, hold the line, and own the libs. We'll see you on Tuesday. Stay ruthless. <laughs>